Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is the 11th episode of the 20 episode series all about Antarctica. And if you've been paying attention, you know they're gonna keep coming out every Thursday until I run out of episodes, which should be sometime in February. So today's episode features two storytellers. Doctors Patricia Succi and Vince Licata. Um, they're both professors at Louisiana State University, AKA LSU, also known as where I went to school twice. Together, they collaborated on a project communicating science through performance art, which is called Persistence of Vision Antarctica. And it's a video installation using video portraits of modern day scientists in historical locations. That's a really succinct way of explaining this complex and amazing project that they did. But I don't want to make that an understatement of how awesome this project is and how much I really want to see it for myself. So I'm going to jump into the episode now because I start with a brief history of Antarctic exploration because it's kind of helpful and important to the conversation that we have in this episode. So thank you for listening and enjoy. So, but first what I want to do is give some background on some of the people we talk about in this episode. There's a lot to Antarctica exploration history that we tangentially talk about. So I kind of just want to go through it a little bit. The first person we talk about is Apsley Cherry Gerard. He was an English explorer who was on the Terra Nova expedition during 1910 to 1913. He was 24 at the start and managed to secure a spot on this expedition as assistant zoologist. He was a pretty interesting person overall, so if you're interested, definitely look him up or check out his book about the expedition called The Worst Journey in the World, which we talk about in this episode. So he was on the Terra Nova expedition, and that was led by Robert Falcon Scott, who was also a famous British explorer. This was Scott's second expedition to Antarctica, and the first one was the Discovery Expedition in 1901 to 1904. And that Discovery Expedition was the first official British expedition to Antarctica, basically in the 1900s. Um, and the idea was to explore the Ross Sea area of Antarctica and try to survey the continent a little bit. So on the Discovery Expedition also was Ernest Shackleton, another famous explorer in his own right in later years. So the Discovery Expedition was successful, the crew returned to England, and the ship itself went on to have a long career doing all kinds of things, like serving in World War I and going on more expeditions. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is because the ship still exists, which I just think is really cool, and is now docked in Dundee, Scotland, which is the city where she was built. So you can still visit this like iconic ship of Antarctic history, which I just think is really cool. So anyway, so on the Terra Nova expedition, there were a lot of people, including Apsley Gerard, uh, Scott that we already talked about, plus Herbert Ponting as the expedition photographer. Ponting's photos are the ones that Trish and Vince used as references for their own project. So when you hear us talk about Ponting midway through the episode, that's who we're talking about. So the Terra Nova expedition's goal was to make it to the South Pole, but it ended up being a bit of a disaster. So I encourage you to look it up if you don't know about it, but I'll give you a real short history. A second team was also gunning for the South Pole, and they were led by Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. And he and his team was ahead of Scott's team by like five weeks. Amundsen's team did in fact reach the South Pole safely and also made it back to their base, becoming the first ones to reach the South Pole, so that's pretty historic. 
Several weeks later, Robert Falcon Scott's South Pole team did reach the pole, but they died on the return journey. Their bodies and effects and journals and everything were recovered the next season by other members of the same Terra Nova expedition who had overwintered in Antarctica at Cape Evans. The remaining members of the expedition returned to England in 1913. So that's a really brief history of Antarctic exploration and the people we talk about in this episode, including Ponting, whose photography and instruction to other expedition members was instrumental for this project because of all the photographs that survived the expedition and of all the places that they photographed. So I wanted to explain all that because it was important and that's probably enough of me rambling. So there's links to everything in the show notes, including where to find Trish and Vince, the link to the video preview we talk about in this episode, which you'll hear, and the website for the Antarctica Artists and Writers Collective. So we're gonna first start off with Trish and Vince introducing themselves and then we're gonna talk all about their project. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. My name is Trish. Suchi. I um, am a professor at LSU. I'm the director of the Screen Arts Program, and I am on the Faculty in Communication Studies, and I've been here almost 25 years. Hi, I'm Vince Licata. I'm in Biological Sciences here at LSU. I've been here almost as long as that, not quite as long as that. What else can I tell you about me? My lab studies extremophile proteins, um, so we don't have anything from Antarctica yet, but we do have um, protein we study from an organism that was isolated off the northern coast of Alaska. That's as cold as we've gotten so far. Well, not as cold as you've gotten because, I mean, it wasn't a science project in Antarctica. Well, it was. It was a. It was an art in service of science project. Or, we never got cold. That was nice. I mean, it yeah. never got... It got what to about 10 degrees or eight degrees. I think it got about eight degrees when we were there. That was about it. But I mean, you got to factor in wind chill. Yes. Oh, there were some days that were brutal on that wind chill. Yeah. Right. It was more actually brutal trying to keep the, the volcanic dust out of your lenses. With yes, especially these lenses, like the ones in your eyeballs, kind of a pain too. So I have a question. So how did y'all two get connected to work on this project together? And then like, maybe where did the idea from the project even come from? Oh, we've been connected forever. We just like, you know, <laughs> like we can't even remember how far back when we got connected. Yeah, I actually remember. Yeah, I remember that lunch too. Yeah. <laughs> Vince asked me the, the most wonderful, weird question that I wasn't, he came to a show in the Hopkins Black Box where I do a lot of, it's kind of my artistic home. Afterward, he asked this question about, I don't know, I'm not going to remember the exact question, but it was like, are there any studies or any articles you could refer me to that talk about communicating science via theater, via performance? And I'm like, hmm, you know, talk about it how. And actually, it was like a question that was not in my wheelhouse, but I was intrigued enough by the question that we decided to have lunch. And uh, then the first thing he said when I sat down to lunch was, so I'm co-writing a play with Ping Chong. And Ping Chong is one of the people who is responsible for me going into the field that I went into. Um, he's an avant-garde uh, theater director, performance arty kind of things. And um, he had been a huge influence. He had a residency in Chicago when I was a graduate student there and I was like, oh my God, I'll take a dozen, you know? So 
for to sit down and say, I'm working on a project with like your hero. Um, it was pretty cool. And from there, you know, they were working on a, a play, um, which Vince eventually wrote. And uh, uh, I got to hang around and do some documentary stuff on. And both of us, I think, were concerned about communicating science in a way that doesn't dumb down the art. And I think also communicating artistically in a way that doesn't dumb down the science. And it's a really hard balance, you know, but I love that um, there's another person here who's a scientist um, who is up to that challenge. I mean, it's so rare. I think a lot of scientists really think of having to communicate what they're doing as maybe this is not fair, but it's kind of a bother. <laughs> it's like, oh, I must do this outreach bit. But um, I think that Vince takes it really seriously. I mean, he's also on the theater faculty, which he just did not say. That's true, I didn't say it, but I am, it is true. I'm an adjunct, it means I don't get any money from him at all. That's really interesting. So my background is a scientist, but like, like science communication is like a thing I'm interested in, but like can't do through work. So I think that that's interesting when people can. And I also think that like, that's such a, I would have never thought to do like theater and science communication or something like that. That's such a really interesting concept. Well, most people don't think of it. I mean, one of the things too that Trish and I have going that is interesting. So when people say science communication, right? It's like they're talking about communicating the science. And when they use art, they use art in service of communicating the science. And this is why a lot of times when people form scientists, artists, teams, it's like it's really heavily balanced one way or the other. <clears throat> and if you say science communication, it's usually like, how can we use this art in service of the communication of the science? And Trish and I yes. don't think about it that way. We think about it as an even balance, yeah. which is actually kind of unusual. I thought there would be more people doing this, but there's not a lot of, not a lot more people doing this than us. <laughs> oh, I mean, I've, so many things where I just, you know, my, my mind walks out of the building, but, you know, I'm there and I'm going to learn something where it's quite clear that the artists and scientists have been brought together so that they can figure out how the artists can make pictures out of the science. <laughs> and that's not at all what we want to do. We think the best way to communicate com complexity in science is complexity in art. Um, which means, you know, we're not making PowerPoints, right? <laughs> um, video installation art using video portraiture, using reenactment. I mean, it takes me half an hour just to explain this project to a lot of people because there's so many pieces, parts that went into it. Is this, is this time to maybe talk about the project itself and how it came about? Oh yeah, let's, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll start and then Vince, you'll probably have different things to say, right? Yeah. Sure. Uh, okay, so I have been um, obsessed with Antarctica since the time I was, um, I think maybe a preteen. I'm not sure when exactly it hit me. I must have brought a book home from the library. It must have had a like a a, a boy book adventure in it because I was into those kind of books um, because nobody was around telling you what to read. So I just read whatever. I had a public library card. Um, and I got fascinated with stories of exploration um, 
you know, in the so-called heroic age. And I don't know why that stuck with me all the way up into, you know, my fifties and uh, it did. Um, and I was going on and on one day about a new book that I was reading because it was the centenary of so many expeditions and new books were coming out and people were chipping old photographs and artifacts out of the ice down in the huts and things and I'd get all excited. And one of my very dear friends said, we're well, gonna do something with all this Antarctic expletive. Um, I'm like, what do you mean do something? I just enjoy it, you know? Um, but in my field, which is performance studies, doing something usually means you're obsessed with texts. Are you going to create a performance out of them? Um, and at that point I thought, huh, I suppose I could, you know? So I did a, a show called Beyond the, the Utmost Bound, just uh, borrowed from a line from Tennyson's Ulysses, which was a favorite of the heroic uh, age explorers. And uh, it was live performance. Uh, it was based on the uh, account of the Terra Nova expedition uh, Robert Falcon Scott's expedition, where you know famously they got to the pole, but got there after Amundsen and didn't make it back. Um, but you know, the, it's quite clear that that was foremostly a scientific expedition that got overshadowed by the race to the pole story. Um, and I was interested in that in doing the show. Um, I used as the main source absolutely Cherry Garrard's *The Worst Journey in the World* which is probably the, in terms of its literary value, the best polar exploration book written in, in my opinion. Um, and so I also was interested in how people think of Antarctica now. So I had a character in there, just called the character, the contemporary, but really it was a surrogate for me, it was you know, somebody who was curious and might want to go to Antarctica someday. Um, and there was a scene in the show where uh, absolutely Cherry Gerard is the main narrator and this contemporary guy who becomes kind of dueling narrator meet and they look at one another and they go, what, what is your outfit made out of? Like, what, what are, you, are you, you're wearing wool? No, <laughs> what is that? Um, and I love the way in, impossible conversations like that that only happen on you know on the stage or on the screen or in art where you can take the the past can interrogate the present as well as the present interrogate the past and that scene which Vince helped me out with um because he was reading drafts of the script as I was writing it which I've never done before um but by then you know, I was really anxious that I get the science in there and get it right. So that was um, um, part of why I was sending him scenes. Also, he's a playwright, you know, a friend is a playwright who said, I'll read scenes for you. You're like, yes, thank you. Um, and so uh, that scene really, um, if I look back on it, I don't think the steps were like, let's take that scene and make it into a project that we do in Antarctica. But really, that was kind of the germ of that, the idea for our project. Yeah, Trisha's obsession with Antarctica is definitely the germ for our project. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's the scene in Beyond the, the Utmost Bound, because it's contemporary person meeting an historic person 
in an image, which is what our video portraits were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people, I mean, once we started this project and we're talking to people about it. So, I mean, the project, we haven't described it yet, right? But it's, it's a series of historic photographs from the heroic age, mostly from a photographer called named Ponting, um, who was with um, Robert Scott on his expedition. And what we do is we um, restage those photographs with modern scientists and modern support staff in, at McMurdo. And we've, and, and so the modern part is actually what's called video portraiture. It's a very slow motion piece of video that almost looks like a picture, but has motion in it. Most of them are like that. Um, we do all the things with time in the, in the modern part as well. Um, and then the, the historic part is the historic photos and we cross fade between them in order to make these connections. Um, and so, um, so when, we were, um, when we were talking about how to interrogate this past, you know, it's like one of the things that became apparent, I mean, I think to both of us was that um, the video portraiture stuff that people like Robert Wilson and Bill Viola were doing at the time might make a lot of sense rather than just crossfading from one photograph to another. That was the first thing that we were thinking of. And turns out when we started working on it, a lot of people were already doing that. I mean, people were sending us stuff where they were saying, here's a picture of someplace in Antarctica from a hundred years ago, and here's the same picture you know, today. And so people had already been doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because- Especially Antarctica, because um, you've got the historic huts there. I mean, the landscape has changed, but it hasn't changed all that much. But, you know, finding landmarks in Antarctica, other than Erebus, which is behind me here, um, is a little bit difficult, but the man-made structures are being conserved. Um, and um, they look the same, like you can walk into the Terranova hut and it's conserved to the point of, you know, the last time it was inhabited. And you can feel like, like people just walked out you know, a hundred years ago, hundred plus years. Sorry, Vince, you were saying? No, I was just saying that, that since people were already doing that, we needed something yeah. new um, as well, rather than just old photograph, new photograph. And so this video portraiture stuff is sort of where we went to since we're both familiar with that sort of artwork, um, the very slow motion portraits. But then we also jazz that up a bit as well. So a lot of our modern portraits are not just ultra slow motion. Some are stop motion. Some are, um, you know, extreme fast motion, um, sped, sped up motion. Most of them are the ultra slow motion um, that we feed, um, that we crossfade to. And so that, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, we want to blend the art and the science. And so that part is very much the artistic part. And it's part of what sold the NSF on our project, believe it or not, because they said there was a, um, an argument on our, our study panel um, about whether or not our project was artistic enough, because they were really pushing for this sort of blend of art and science, too. They did not want a project that just explained the science. And they said the artists on the panel said, oh, yeah, this stuff they're doing with the modern portraits is very artistic. I mean, people are going to be going hmm, I wonder what's going on there. And that kind of, you know, kind of makes it, pulls it over into the artistic level rather than the just explaining level. Right, but I think when most people come down with a video project, it, it's 
a lot of people come to make documentary, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's March of the Penguins with, you know, I mean, they're not have tons of money and, and, and there was a film crew from Discovery while we were there. They were filming some scenes for a series called Mars. I, I saw the episode later and I was like, why do they even come? <laughs> not to cast aspersions on them, but supposedly in the McMurdo Dry Valleys, the landscape there is the closest thing we have on Earth to Mars. Um, I don't know about that. I've not been to Mars, but uh, it is it is a great place, and we got to go there, which was really really cool. And I think the other thing that set our our work apart is we didn't want it just to you know lie there on a videotape. Um, we did installation art, which is cumbersome, I, by the way. Um, you know, we had a in the Hopkins black box. We set it up first, and we had I think eight different stations, um, some that had multiple video screens, some of them used surfaces that we projected on, um, some of them had these big screens that we built from scratch because we didn't have the money to buy the screens, you know. Um, and uh, I mean, get just getting that thing up and processing all the data, getting it edited, we worked with students um, on that. We had a, a wonderful composer that we worked with um, so it wasn't just like you, I mean, it's misleading now because we are doing a web installation, but um, it's the, we always had in mind the idea that these would be installed in space. And I always saw these sort of hovering screens and uh, they do, they do, they're not plastered on the wall, they hover in space. So you wander through these strange images you also hear the voices of the people who are in the portraits that we, we did interviews with almost every single one of them. And then we cut those up into little snippets of things that they say. So there's a sound and a space environment. And when you're wandering among, you know, all these giant screens of people who are moving very slowly in and out of things, there's something that happens to you that's actually emotional. Um, so one of the goals was always to have people, and when you're communicating something, you think about the informational aspect of it, but that's not the only channel of communication. And sometimes you can reach people, um, you know, through their emotions in ways that it's hard to talk about, right? It doesn't sort of lay out in a prospectus, but um, I, that, that did happen for people. Um, and Sometimes even when I show people just discrete portraits on a stupid laptop, they, they kind of get that feeling of it. And I think part of the feeling is slowing down because video portraits are slow and we're used to images that move busily. Um, I think another aspect is seeing how clearly we can join the past and the present. That's artful. I mean, we, we framed things up according to Ponting's photographs. And then, you know, different aspect ratios, different lenses, different, his are in black and white. So there's a lot of mismatching, um, which I actually like. So there's mismatch within the match and you can see the similarity and the difference at the same time. Um, there's something about the stories connected with those people and the stories connected with contemporary researchers who are, you know, not well paid, they're doing extraordinary things, which are also ordinary, 
you know, just to get, you know, the thing that they do over and over and over and over again, you know, you're a wetlands researcher, you know, um, to get a result that they might not even live to see. I think there's something so incredible about that, but it's hard to, and you don't think of those people as heroic, but I think they are. Yeah, it sounds like the installation was very immersive and just like all the senses and it, it sounds amazing. But we were supposed to have it right now. It's supposed to be playing at the Pink Palace in Memphis, but because of the pandemic, um, you know, uh, we've had a couple things that we had to cancel, but we are going to have um, a part, just a, a sampling in a group show that's on the Antarctic Artists and Writers Collective's website. I know that there's a group of artists and writers and that there's like a artist in residence program. I don't know if those two are related, but yeah, I looked at the website. It was, there's a lot happening. <laughs> and it's quite new. That website's less than a half, about a half a year old. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it, it was, uh, it's hard to believe it was just a year ago. Is it Labor Day? Yeah, Labor Day. Weekend. Um, one of the people who still works for the United States Antarctic program and has worked closely to chaperone the artists, NSF has off and on an Antarctic artists and writers program. It's a very competitive grant program. You don't get any money, but you get to go there and they put you up and get you there and make sure you don't die and things like that, you know. And uh, she had this person who put this together had been working with artists for a couple decades and um, thought it was a shame that, um, you know, they just go away and some you hear from later, some you don't, but they never hear from each other. There's no community. So she invited 13 of us to this retreat that was also given some backing by uh, at, a former employee of the US Antarctic program um, who now owns like an artist retreat. And so we, we went there and out of those conversations, we were like, ooh, we wanna do some things together. And so we spent a year doing this, you know, we were Zooming before we had to just as for distance. Um, and uh, the upshot of it was that we formed this, um, organization which now has nonprofit status under that arts incubator that we talked about. And um, we've got, I think we opened it up to all um, alums of the National Science Foundation and Arctic Artists and Writers Program. And I think we've got 60 people, something like that on the website who were interested and created a profile. And um, we've got different committees, different things. The first big thing we're doing is this group show um, that will probably launch sometime in January and it'll be available through the website, but we've got an independent curator for it um, who's been working really hard on it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've got different committees and different ideas of things that we could do. We want the Antarctic art to go on. Um, so, that's where that website came from. Yeah, so I guess when the pandemic allows things to be in person again, you're in, okay, wait, I actually have a question. What is your show called? Okay. Persistence of Vision Antarctica. Okay, uh, so I guess like when we can do things in person again, y'all will find somewhere 
to install it again so people can see it? Well, we've got one, yeah, one, one spot that's definitely going up at the Pink Palace in Memphis. I don't know if you know that. It's a big um, science museum in Memphis. Um, um, it's a fantastic facility. It's like, so you know our, our science museum in downtown Baton Rouge, if you multiply that to about four times that size, that's what this place is like. Um, and then we've got tentative, you know, things scheduled um, via the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science headquarters in Washington, DC has been talking to us for what, almost two years now about putting it in there. I mean, and COVID sort of put that on hold as well. Um, and then we've got a couple of other irons in the fire around. So. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to talk about planning for a live event now, as you may well imagine. Yeah. Um, I think there are places that would be excited to have us, but they, they don't have anything right now. They're all trying to figure out how to, you know, keep going virtually. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided that working on this virtual installation would be not a replacement for what we do, but it's, you know, it's like, let's keep this going. Let's not lose momentum entirely on it because we still have some shows to do. We did one in, um, we're invited by the University of Calgary, uh, Department of Art. And um, it was up in a gallery space there for about three weeks. Um, and it overlapped with a, a performance studies conference that I went to at the University of Calgary. So that was really cool taking it to a place um, that was so different from where we first installed it. And we had to scale it down because it was a smaller room, but, um, you know, different, like a totally different milieu. And um, I got to watch people who were sort of trained in performance studies interact with it. And then, you know, random people from the art school at the university, um, people who wandered in because I ran around putting postcards all over the campus. It was summer. It was during the, um, the uh, Calgary Stampede. <laughs> so, uh, there were a lot of people in town for the rodeo and you know what do you what do you do when you're tired of all rodeoed out well hey you should go look at some installation art on Antarctica um, but it, it, that was fun it was fun to do it there so I was so looking forward to the Pink Palace and then um, but we'll get it up again soon um, it's not done yet eventually after we're done touring it which could you know, go on depending on how long the pandemic goes on um, for another three or four years. Um, we certainly hadn't intended that, but you know, everything's changed. Mm -hmm. um, and then at a certain point, we will make it a, a an internet installation so that anybody can see it. That was part of our deal. Mm -hmm. I was mainly curious like where I would need to go to see it basically. <laughs> It sounds like Memphis, possibly, or DC. <laughs> Hopefully. I can do that. <laughs> this is not about art, but about the worst journey in the world, because I haven't read that book yet, but I just got a copy, and I've been, like, itching to read it, and so it's good to hear. Nobody has said a bad thing about it, so. I've read it maybe four times, five times. I don't know. I actually just listened to it on Audible, because I've been trying not to watch so much video, because we do a lot of this. Mm -hmm. um, so... To go to sleep i listen to podcasts and um including yours not to go to sleep but i've been listening to some podcasts and uh, books and i thought well i'll just 
you know, I'll listen to something that I know well enough that it won't matter if I drift off, but I'm not able to drift off when I'm listening. To <laughs> so it's, it's not a good choice, but I've been enjoying it. I'm almost done. I just got to the very sad part. If you drift off in that book, you might freeze to death. So you gotta... <laughs> oh, that's funny. Vince, I have a question for you. So I, I have a lot of friends who are scientists first and also have some sort of like artistic outlet. So I'm maybe curious which came first for you and also how you found the other part. Because Trish said you're also a playwright. I mean, you've obviously been doing this stuff. So neither one really came first. If you want to go all the way back to like kindergarten and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and but I think the critical decision sort of got made right after undergrad. I mean, I was I was a biochem major as an undergrad, but I also took a lot of English courses. And so I could go in either direction. And I had an English professor that was really encouraging me to get my master's in English. And he said he would get me into the program and all this other stuff. And I was just sort of like, do I want to do that? Or do I want to apply for science PhD programs? And I just went, you know, I kind of want to have a steady job. So I applied for the science programs. <laughs> but, you know, it just, I kept both, both interests. Um, but I don't know if that was a completely fair decision to make, but that is the way I made the decision at the point, at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the decision you made is the decision you made. And, you know, so I think that's totally fair. <laughs> I don't know if it's totally fair to English professors, but English, I mean, oh man, God, becoming an English professor is more competitive, I think, than becoming a science professor. I, I mean, there are very few jobs. Yeah. You wind yeah. up teaching the fine art of the freshman essay for decades, and then you despair <laughs> and, and go work in the private sector because it's thankless. Sorry, that was scary. <laughs> pessimistic <laughs> yes. I mean I have a lot of friends who got PhDs in English and that's basically what happens not to everyone sure yeah yeah it's just I was thinking about it because you know as a science major at LSU I only took two writing classes I took like the freshman one and then technical writing later and that's it and so there's I you know I like writing but I'm not like honed at it or anything like I'm good at science writing where it's just like we did this this and this and then this happened and this that and data pointed you know it's very procedural I guess um yeah it's sort of amazing that the format of the science paper now has not changed in almost a century I mean it's really solidified around 1920s or 30s but it's not changed since then <laughs> it's formulaic like um Paige Giroux, who went to LSU and got a PhD and does science communication. Mm -hmm. She's, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think right now at LSU at least, I, I can't speak for other places, but there've been like, some real steps forward. I mean, we have the Science Cafe, um, which Vince has been, you know, instrumental in. And um, I think People are concerned about this, um, partly because I, I don't want to get political here. 
and I'm going to. Um, I mean, you know, there's been sort of a, a, a public disparagement or at least ignoring of si perfectly good science. Um, for example, on climate change. Okay. It's incontrovertible. There is not a person who works in Antarctica who doesn't for us, who would entertain for a second. I mean, and these are not people who are going down there as activists. They're interested in getting truth, right? But of course they, they all, what is it? Why is climate change a matter of belief or not? It's a exactly. fact. It's like, I don't believe in science. I don't believe in climate change. What does that mean even? I can't get my head around that. So, I mean, I think that those kinds of statements and sentiments are really a result of maybe the, the internet, maybe the kind of communication that, you know, I think we can fight back against with positive and clear, but interesting and engaging communication. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's, become a concern. I think it's a public duty of a university. You don't even have to become party political to talk about it. America just is not a very science friendly country. I mean, as much as we lead the world in a lot of science fields. I mean, I, one of my favorite stories, one of my friends from grad school did a postdoc in Germany. And um, after he got there, he was setting up his apartment and everything like this. And he and he couldn't get phone service. It's like, for some reason, they just wouldn't hook up his phone. And it was taking weeks. And he was complaining to somebody in lab. And the person in lab said, well, did you tell them you're a researcher at the university? And he's like, no, why would I tell them I'm a researcher at the university? He said, come on, I'll help you. And, he, and they called the phone company and said, I would like you to talk to Dr. Taramino, who is a researcher here at the university about getting his phone hooked up because it's been a couple of weeks. And they were like, oh my God, Dr. Taramino, oh, we're so, so, so sorry. It was hooked up that afternoon. Wow. It's like, can you imagine a scientist having that much clout in the United States? <laughs> I mean, sorry, it ain't gonna happen. Uh -huh. I'm a scientist. <laughs> yeah. a great story. I was going to say, you haven't asked us about what it was like to be in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, so that was one of my next questions, actually. I wanted to comment real quick, though, on the, um, the way that y'all perceive the interaction of science and art, because I find that really amazing and really, like, refreshing, too, because it's a different different twist on the whole situation where one's not serving the other. They are working together, and everything's complex. and. I just think that's awesome. It's really, I don't know a question, just a comment. <laughs> Thank you. It does lead to a lot of interesting, I would say arguments between us, but they're generative arguments. I mean, we do not see eye to eye and there'll be a like, like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What did you just say? You just used, you just laid some jargon on me. I do it too, you know, I'm like, let's read Rebecca Schneider on reenactment and, and Vince's eyes are rolling and I, oh, Okay, um, so we constantly have to figure out ways to talk to each other or also to, when we have a disagreement to explain, whereas if I were working with one of my artist friends, I don't know that I'd have to explain myself, you know? So I think also because we're both kind of bullheaded people, um, you know, it's, it's like, we're not gonna back down. Um, I'm not going to go, oh, okay, I'm sorry, Mr. Scientist, you know, and he's not going to say, okay, you're the artist, you know, 
you know, it, it's always irrational, you know. So we don't do that. Um, but it does mean we do argue a good bit. And I think sometimes people overhearing that might think, oh my God. But really it's generative. We're both working on the same goal. I actually love working with people who see things very differently than I do. It keeps me honest. It keeps me thinking through and seeing things that I would not otherwise see. You know, which I think is, is crucial. Yeah, uh, having different perspectives makes for like really great partnerships I found, <laughs> um, rather than just everybody agreeing on the same thing on the same path. Um, yeah, okay, so tell me about your experiences in Antarctica. And I'm also curious about the places where you, you did your, the portraits and where you filmed all that and did those things. So McMurdo is sort of like a really rundown beach resort without a beach. But I've heard mining town, you know, you know, it's got a kind of community aspect to it that I don't think a mining town. Yeah. Does. I mean, you think of mining town very as a much darker place in, you know, psychologically. And McMurdo is definitely not a dark place psychologically. It's an extraordinarily optimistic place. Um, and the science, everybody's working really hard there, but they're also playing really hard. The kind of things that I didn't expect was that when you get there, there's this gigantic um, slate of different recreational activities you can do. You can go to yoga, you can go to, you know, incredible exercise classes, you can go to, you know, people who like climb this one hill outside of town, you can go to people who are discussing science fiction, you go to people who are watching every episode of the Twilight Zone, you can go to people who are writing songs together. It's just like, and it's there's all a like- knitting circle. There's um, people, they do a marathon run. Um, there are parades, <laughs> dances. They had Mardi Gras for us while we were there. It, it was a little lame, but it, it was nice. It was a little touch of home. Of course, it's 19 hours later there. So it was actually Monday when we were having Mardi Gras. Interesting, because there's only a thousand people there. I mean, yeah. you know, in the, at the height of the summer. And yet there's enough activities going on for like a, a city of 100,000 or 200,000. And it's because everybody that goes down there is like, hyper energetic hyper creative hyper you know into the world you know they're not just sitting back and doing nothing and so they are on when they are working and they are on when they are not working <laughs> also the lights are on 24 hours and i think that has something to do with it a 24-hour daylight for me was really hard i loved it but i had to force myself to sleep because the light was telling me do things go, go out, two things. So I would take these walks in the middle of the night, you know, in, in broad daylight, which is weird. Um, and just think, no, no, you need to go to sleep. Put the blackout curtain on, you actually need to sleep. My whole body is saying, no, you don't, no, you don't. It's bright out, you should be busy. You could be working right now, you know. Like, go wake up Vince, we'll get a camera. But you know, that would have gone over well. But uh, I think that's part of it. Um, but it's also the fact that the austral summer is short and most of the research goes on then. So you have to like make hay well during the short time that you have, um, or, you know, it's going to be a long time until the next season when you get there. 
And then also it's extra, even though it's a lot easier than it was a hundred plus years ago, it's still hard to get there. You know, it's hard to like, you got to think through a lot of things. It's not like with our stuff, if we lost, you know, a connector or something, we can't just nip down to the Best Buy, you know? So we were really careful and redundant on equipment and, you know, um, things like grounding ourselves because it's really, really dry down there. When we were handling SD cards, I was so scared we were gonna fry one. Um, you know, bringing your equipment in and out of, from extreme cold to the overheated Crary lab was um, stuff like that. And working with the people on the project. So everybody is so friendly. That was an, another thing that I kind of surprised me. It's like, I mean, you've probably been to scientific conferences, right? So where you go to a conference and everybody's kind of friendly and interactive and stuff like that at, at, a, at a conference, they want to know what you do and they want to tell you what they do. So imagine a scientific conference where now you've just, that's where the knob is at six and now you've turned the knob up to nine. That's what it's like being in McMurdo. It's like, it's like, you know, there's no group hugs, but it feels like you've been group hugged. Like it's the minute you get there, it's like, oh, oh, look, no, here's the new artists and writers. Tell us what your project is going to be like. Oh, here, let me show you the research that I'm doing. And oh, look, this is the, you know, this is what I like to do. This is the club I like to go to in my off time, you know, where we like watch the Twilight Zone or whatever. You come do that. It's like, there's like all these attack friendly. It's almost like they're attack friendly people, but in a, in a, not even in a threatening way in, a, in a just an amazing way. Yeah. I mean, when we were planning this, we knew we wanted to take a lot of portraits and NSF was a little skeptical. You know, people are busy down there. You, you're not, not to bother them. I'm like, okay, that's why there's two of us. One of us will stand in and then when we're ready to shoot it, we'll grab the person for just a couple minutes. That's all. And that's all we ever did. But, um, in fact, we found out it was like, we were like, no, I'm sorry, we have enough. We Because people were demanding, like, they wanted, like, please, can we be in one of your, we'd like to be in one of your things, could you? So, um, which was lovely and generous. Um, but I also love that while we were, um, you know, focused on what they call down there, the beakers, um, there's a whole kind of, jargony language down in there, but the scientists are the beakers. And then there's you know, staff people who are fuelies and colorful expressions like food monkeys. And um, we were really interested in the staff in the way, because everybody's working on the science. It's, you know, scientists have to be fed. Um, and the people who work down there are not like, you don't, they're not well-paid positions. People aren't there for the pay. They're there for the, you get extraordinary people who want to go to extreme places, people who don't really live anywhere but McMurdo. And then during the rest of the year, they just travel all over. They're nomadic. They, you know, they're in Tahiti one day and then they're climbing a mountain another day. Or, you know, they have PhDs in philosophy or they're, you know, musical composers and you'll find them serving your food in the cafeteria. So the people who work down there are without, I mean, I've never been in a town. You think, okay, it's a small town, but it's full of people who have diverse 
extraordinary backgrounds and experiences. So every conversation becomes like, oh my God, do you do this? You do that? You do that? Um, and it's, uh, it's like a concentrated place and a concentrated time with people who have concentrated personalities. So that you live very intensely there. Yeah, you sort of uh, touched on what I had a question about is how did you find the people to be in your portraits? Uh, it kind of sounds like maybe that wasn't a problem, but I was just curious, like, you know, who maybe who the people are and where the portraits were taken. Like, I, I know that they were, you know, where previous pictures have been taken, but I'm just curious about that. I mean, it was something we were really worried about at the beginning. We had we had found out some of the people that were going down there and made some contacts with them, like the people from Ice Cube who are doing the neutrino experiments down there and stuff. But other ones, NSF was, was, didn't want to give us a list of everybody that was going to be down there so that we could just cull through it. And so we had these people lined up, like Jim Madsen from Ice Cube and stuff. But then the rest of what we did was we just went to a Ponting photo and said, this is one of the photos we think we can recreate. And then when we were down there, we had absolute access to everybody who was down there and knew who was down there and said, we think this person might work or this person might work. And often we would discuss, you know, who we were going to approach first and stuff like that. And it always our first person that we approached would say, yeah, I want to do it. And, but it was just, it was that sort of process of, starting with the historic photo for most of them and saying, who is here now that would make a good transition with this historic photo? And we always had two or three options because you know, the, the work down there is so diverse and you know, from geologists to biologists to physicists and stuff, you could always find a connection. There were a few that were pretty obvious to me. David Ainley, who is um, the penguin, a daily penguin expert. I mean, he's so well-known. He's been in a number of things. He was in the Werner Herzog film, but he's all, he's well-known for his um, extended uh, time in that colony um, and uh, the research he's published, but he agreed right away, but you got the feeling that, you know, he's kind of like, he's in everything. Everybody comes down there because he's, um, he's wonderfully, strange he's got a little crusty and, and and quite lovely actually um he showed a documentary on the rebuilding of Christchurch after the earthquake um that was focused on the arts and um a warning not to get it to turn it into a convention city which is what I guess the plans the official plans had been for so he brought that documentary and screened it in 155 which is the big the mess hall with screenings there sometimes. So, I mean, that had nothing to do with his research. It had everything to do with his investment in Christchurch, New Zealand, which is uh, where we stage um, stuff because it's the closest to McMurdo. So your flights all come in from there. Um, so we, we had talked to him, we talked to um, Madsen and Ice Cube. There were a couple other people we talked to, but really a lot of it was, as Ben said, there was a researcher there, um, Jinzo, uh, who was, um, she invited us to her lab on what's called Arrival Heights, which has gotta be one of the most stunning places to have a lab in the universe. I mean, it's way up on this bluff 
and you can see over the sound and you can see, you know, Erebus and you can see the barrier and everything, you know, and uh, she's shooting lasers up into what sphere? Stratosphere? All of them. The stratosphere, the, All of them. the sphere, yeah. She's trying to take temperature of the different levels of the atmosphere. So we had a photo photo of a researcher whose name escapes me right now, but uh, 100 years ago on Terra Nova, taking temperatures under the ice. So that, you know, we posed her in that position. And that was, um, you know, that one's really easy to see the connections between those two things, because they're both measuring temperature. Um, but she's, you know, in color and up on this roof, and her hair is blowing and slowly because it's and you see the laser, she's putting a piece of paper over the laser and you see it start to flicker. So you see that because it's video portraiture. We went, um, we spent a lot of time around McMurdo, but we went to the McMurdo Dry Valleys, which, you know, were just amazing. Um, we went to, the, to um, Cape Evans where the Terra Nova hut is, which, oh, we went to the, uh, Penguin Colony on uh, Cape Royds with Dr. Ainley. And then we had like, you know, Vince took a hike to what's called Castle Rock. Uh, we both did a snowmobile thing to basically the, the, the beginning of the slope of Erebus. Um, they call it Room with a View. Um, so we, we were around, um, but it, most of our work actually took place at McMurdo. And apparently we were we got to go a lot of places. That was another kind of surprising thing down there is that the scientists get to go to their sites and back to McMurdo. And the people who work at McMurdo, uh, the certain that are, you know, keeping the town functional, they rarely get to leave. Yeah. They do have a recreational program now where they can put in their name and about once a month, they get to go with a scientist to their site just to see the site and just to get out of McMurdo. But they spend 99.99% of their time in McMurdo, never leaving the confines of McMurdo. And that was kind of surprising. There's, you just don't, you think of if you go to Antarctica, you're just going to be like hiking and biking and whatever and skiing and, you know, and going everywhere. And it's like, no, you're in McMurdo because. Also for safety reasons. Yeah. You know, you, that's where you can stay alive. Yeah. Well, yeah, they don't want to lose anybody. And there are, you know, walking distance you can fall into a crevasse and and die you know they want you they want to know hopefully all the ones that are in walking distance have been marked but new ones can open up um so they want you to stay on their certain designated hiking routes that you can take like the the one that you did to castle rock but i think didn't you guys have to file a plan or Tell we had someone. to file a plan. We had to take walkie-talkies with us. We had to check in every hour, or else we, they would you would automatically invoke a search party to come for us if we did not check in every hour. And it's a six to seven hour hike, so it's like it was. Yeah, they're serious. <laughs> yeah, it was a little much for my knees, so I didn't go. But um, I was um, aware that it was intense. No. I mean, you can walk to Scott Base, which is the New Zealand base. You don't need a permit for that. It's about what, a mile? Not even, something like yeah, that. About a mile. A mile, maybe a mile and a half. I don't know, it's not that far. Um, you can also, I mean, they do run a shuttle service between the two. It's fun to go over there because their base is very, very different and um, it's smaller. 
um, it's more sort of uniform. Um, McMurdo is, you know, it began in the 50s as a military installation and it's grown like, like there's been no real urban planning there. And they're trying to fix it that now, they're addressing it because um, it's kind of inefficient. Well, it's very inefficient. So a lot of things where you would have to go outside and all these scattered little buildings, they're going to consolidate and so that they've got this one big building that you can, there's one newer building called Crary, which is the lab, which I think is really great. I love that place. Um, and it's pretty big and convenient. Uh, but it's also, while you're there, you, um, you walk to work, like you could roll out of bed into work, basically. It's that close. Um, and into the cafeteria. So the mess hall and curry lab and then wherever we're going to do shoots, those are the places that we went. And, um, you know, none of this requires a vehicle, although there were a couple times when we went on the barrier that we needed to on the, the Ross ice shelf. And um, uh, going up to... Um, Arrival Heights um, and also to the area next to Observation Hill. We had a truck one day. I don't remember why we had the truck. Do we have the truck because we had gear? Yeah, I think we were taking some stuff up there. Uh, but I mean, and you're also, you don't have to prepare your food. You don't have to go buy it. You don't have to clean up after it. I mean, you have a lot of time to do stuff. It's you know, I wish my life here were kind of more like that. <laughs> so it'd be like, oh, so, you know, I just go there and I'll go get my food and, you know, then I'll go back to work. Um, you know, I, I found you could be extraordinarily productive there. And part of my, if I got frustrated there, it'd be like the first week, most of what we did are what's called trainings, like how to set up this bivy thing in case you get stuck somewhere, which is important, you know, and how to do these certain knots in there and, you know, what's in the survival kit, which includes interestingly, like um, a, one magazine from like the eighties, <laughs> in case you get bored. Um, and, you know, uh, learning how to, we had to do something for, I don't know, for licenses or something. Uh, there were all these trainings that we had. Um, and I'd be like, God, we've been here four days and we haven't opened our cameras. I feel like, you know, like, oh my God, we're never going to get all of this that we want to get. So after we got the first, you know, three or four days of actual shooting and we already had done a lot, I was like, okay, we got this. We can do this. It's going to work. It's going to happen. That is so cool. Um, but, you know, it's not like we're going to go back and reshoot something. We can't do that. So we shot and shot and shot and shot and shot and shot and shot. Consequently, we're sitting on all this material that we didn't use that I think we could use some of it in other places. But this is typical of anybody who goes on this program. I mean, they, they um, just use all their time. And I would imagine the science is a little bit like that, too. You know, like use your time because you know it's limited. We did not go to the um, South Pole or just the pole. Call it pole because why would you be going to the North Pole when you're in Antarctica? Um, 
because of limited um, space there on both flights and in the general quarters sleeping and so on. Um, and that was in our proposal. Our proposal was passed. The portraits we wanted to do there were central. And then when they said, looks like you're not gonna be able to go, we were like, oh no, oh dear. And we pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where I thought they were gonna say, okay, we're gonna, gonna take the grant away. I'm like, no, no. Um, so we traded the McMurdo Dry Valleys for it. And I think we got the better end of the deal actually. They were way more fascinating. I mean, the pole, it's cool, but it's just basically a big empty flat space with, uh, at a very high altitude. And I'm quite sure I would have gotten altitude sickness because I've had it before and I don't want to get it again. And you go really quickly to 10,000 feet, 10,000 or 12,000. Yeah, somewhere between 10,000. Yeah, it's high. Um, but, you know, since it's flat and you're on a plateau, you don't have, like, you're not looking at mountains or anything you do fly over them and you are actually on top of them. It's just, there's miles of ice you know, mm. stuck on them. Um, but we had, um, it, ha it occurred to us that Herbert Ponting, who was the photographer whose work we were emulating, he didn't go to the South Pole either. Mm. Otherwise he would have died. Um, he taught the people who actually went all the way to the pole to use smaller portable cameras. And, you know, they had photography lessons and they took them. And that's why we have that and the fact that they found the bodies of Scott and uh, well, the next season, they found them and were able to recover the film and that kind of stuff. Um, so, okay, maybe we could do the same thing. So that's when Vince's connection with Jim Madsen at, I, at uh, the University of Wisconsin, I went to visit him and we gave them two GoPros kits, you know, with like, we actually in the quad at LSU staged the photographs and took video of it to figure out like where the tripod goes, where this person goes, when this person is, because that one's a little bit different. The people are actually walking in and out of the image and there's, mm -hmm three different images that they're walking in and out of. So it's a little bit more complicated. So we're like, all right, here's where we want. These are the camera settings. This is what you need to do, you know, and Vince you know, handed them over in person so that we could talk about it. And, and then I thought, oh God, if those cameras come back with anything on them, it's gonna be a miracle, you know? And actually they did a great job. I absolutely love that footage. And it was so much fun to work on that and matching it. But it was kind of like this huge, first I said, look, why don't we just take you out on the ice shelf somewhere and you can shoot them there. And I'm like, no, because we might as well be in Kansas or something. <laughs> the idea is that this is where it happened or as near uh -huh. as we can reckon. Um, and it's different up there. The air is completely different. The, the way the horizon looks is completely different. Um, the way you have to move, it's so cold up there that you have to move more slowly because you're really super bundled up. You can only stay out for a certain amount of time before your, you know, your shoot is over. You're not gonna do 18 takes. You're gonna do maybe two, and then you gotta go back inside because it's too cold and it's windy. Um, 
So it was important that those take place there. And I think they did a, a great job. Yeah, Madsen was fantastic. So I went up to, to Madison and practiced with him. We'd, we'd drawn out a map of how he, all, everybody had to stand and how they walked into the scene. And we practiced in the lobby of the Ice Cube building, which is actually not on the UW campus. It's actually slightly down State Street, um, um, but they have a big lobby. And so we practiced with his graduate students in the lobby of that. And then when they got to the South Pole, they actually practiced in the gym at the South Pole. And I didn't even know that because we got back, you know, these little cards with, with all the groups that they did at the South Pole. And I was looking at, at all the things that they collected. And on one of the discs was a bunch of practice sessions in the gym yeah. at the South Pole before they actually went out into the snow. And I was like, ah, oh, this is so awesome. <laughs> So, he was so we, really had, we had staged it in order to come up with a set of stage directions and, and all angles and things with our graduate students in the LSU Quadrangle. Then they and Vince staged it with Madsen and then they went on and did rehearsals um, in Madison. And then they had rehearsals at Pole and then they did the thing. So there were all these sets of rehearsals um, and you know, I don't know why I was so worried about it because people seemed to have taken the preparation really seriously. But you know, it's like I don't have the camera; I'm not controlling what's going on. Oh my god, it's out of my control! But they were absolutely splendid. And when he brought the footage back to us, we were at McMurdo, uh, McMurdo, and uh, I, you know, I popped the first disc in and started looking at it. And went, oh my god! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it's so extraordinary. He also, I think they really enjoyed doing it because it was a different thing to do. And uh, that's the thing about our project that only we talked about, although going late, um, is involving scientists in the making of the art. Um, and not just in like, you know, here, give us this thing and we'll illustrate it, but actually putting their bodies into it and showing them, you know, the portrait and then they're trying to find a pose and finding the like the the setup in their in their laboratory or whatever that was cool it got people who were um i think at least for the short period of time they may not have completely put this together um but it got people who were thinking about you know getting their next data point to think about maybe why they were doing it and to be performing science and what it means to perform science and you know what your body does and what Antarctica does to your body and um, I don't know I thought that was, was pretty cool plus finding their connections to the history of Antarctic exploration because it really is a historical continuum that will go on hopefully nobody decides they're going to coal mine there or something. Well, even though y'all didn't get to go to the South Pole, it kind of worked out perfectly because you did what the other photographer had done by sending other cameras with other people. Uh, it's easy to, I mean, I think given the choice, we would have gone. Sure. Of course, of course. Like, God, yeah. Like, you get that close and like, yes, of course. Uh -huh. But, um, I mean, it's easy to kind of, back reason that but it actually unfolded that way because I was we were both kind of in despair over not going to poll we were like 
crap, should we not, should we wait till another year when there's room? We've already been wait, waiting because um, the first proposal we put in was unsuccessful, but that's pretty typical. Um, but they liked it enough to work with us on some ideas for revising it and we completely changed it. Um, but then, then we, we had it back another year because of the government shutdown. Yeah. We were, we were caught up in a government shutdown. I was going to ask what year did y'all go actually? Just out of curiosity. It'll be five years ago, January 2nd that we left, that we deployed. So you went in 2016? Yeah. There was a, I don't even remember when there was a partial government shutdown. It wasn't like the year we were supposed to go or even I think the year before, but it created a backlog because the shutdown came in October September, October, somewhere in there, right when the, the the research season starts and they started to have to close down McMurdo and send people home. And can you imagine like your whole like, years of research are supposed to culminate getting your data points in Antarctica and, and you're like, whoop, go home. So, like, can you just leave me here? It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> the people, they got behind on all the, you know, the promised. So, and as important as we think the art is, the science took priority. So, you know, artists and writers went on hiatus for a while and the people who were promised in line, including me and Vince, had to like wait and um, for them to catch up. It also, to me, it emphasizes why the art is important because how do you keep a public engaged in a program that feels so remote? like Antarctica, what the hell does that got to do with me? That's, that's just, I mean, it's, it's expensive. It's cumbersome to do research there. It, there's a lot of research that like collecting neutrinos. How is that, you know, like that's not going to stimulate the economy right now. <laughs> so people want, you know, what absolutely Cherry Garrard calls shopkeeper thinking. They want research to have immediate like economic impact and there's stuff that's going on there that is just so long range and so you know from that perspective it's impractical but it's absolutely necessary to add to the store of human knowledge about how the world works somehow or another you have to convince people of that and that's where the communication aspect comes in so i guess you could do that through a beautiful photography a coffee table book um certainly we made friends who are incredible photographers who've been deployed um, through writing stories, uh, through documentaries, through things, you know, um, but you know, the art exists to, to speak to a general public, also to speak to our Congress that, um, you know, does or does not pass the budget for NSF to get funded, to be able to do things. So keep the appropriations going. Um, I think the arts are instrumental in this, um, but it's not that crass and direct. I think it's just, a, there's a kind of holistic approach to um, understanding Antarctica as a place that is also importantly, not about human beings you know, um, which is one of the most moving things about it when you get there that hits you right away. The human beings are wonderful there, but it would get along just fine without us, thank you. Um, you know, those emperors over my shoulder there in the, in the picture, 
we're not supposed to touch them or come anywhere near them or anything like that. Um, we can only observe them. So, but they don't, we don't need to be there to observe them. The, the continent will go on, has been going on for a very long time without us. And it's sort of the lack of um, human, relative lack of human presence there that is um, humbling and moving and, um, you know, I'd love for people to experience that, that firsthand. My, my fear is too many people start experiencing it firsthand and, um, you know, it has an impact. That can be done responsibly though. Um, but it's expensive, as you know, to go down there. I mean, most people will not ever set foot on the seventh continent. Um, and that's probably a good thing, but it's also, it's really hard to establish a connection with the place in the absence of that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was our job. <laughs> establish a connection with the place. As soon as the pandemic's over, we'll be able to get back to doing that. <laughs> yeah, I say I haven't seen the installation obviously, but I would expect that it would be very good at establishing connections because it just sounds amazing. And I don't know, very relatable and very immersive and all those things. Did we send you a link to the video preview? I can't remember. Yes, you did. I did watch that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you got to see at least, I mean, it's not installed, but you got to see at least, you know, yeah. some of the images and some of the mm -hmm. tactics for representing them. Yeah. Uh, and there'll be more different ones in that group show coming up. So we'll be sure and follow up with you. Yeah, please do. Well, this has been really amazing. Is there anything else we should talk about? Get with the program, America, and get excited about science like the rest of the world is. Yeah. Yay, science. <laughs> Yay, science. Yay, science. Yay, Antarctic science in particular. It's become almost a cliche, but in a way, uh, it's true like any other cliche. Um, Antarctica is kind of a barometer of how we're doing with the planet. And not so well, you know. Right. Um, it's interesting to, I mean, we went to, they have science lectures actually twice a week at McMurdo, which is a tradition that goes back to the heroic age. Go to a science lecture and learn about why the Adelie penguins are, colonies are shifting around. They're actually growing in some places and decreasing in others as, as the krill make up changes in the whole ecosystem that starts with the mighty krill. This has huge implications. Um, of course, big chunks of giant ice shelves chucking off and going adrift into the ocean and the fact that the glaciers are melting, some of them at an alarming rate, accelerated rate is, I mean, we should, we should care about that. Mm -hmm. We just had a season, we are still having a season of world record breaking amounts of hurricanes. Um, you know, I don't have to tell you, you've still got debris in your, your yard as do I, but climate change research going on there, um, but other things as well, these extremophiles that Vince is studying, they have a way of, I, I'm gonna sound like an idiot saying this, but they have a kind of a way of freeze drying their tissues somehow. They have like antifreeze in place of, um, some body fluids. So the thought is that they have been, you know, suspended in time for millennia and that you could thaw them out and <laughs> reanimate them, you know, like Walt Disney or something. 
But, you know, there are these microbes that are so, so old, you sort of get an idea of what the world was like then. And, you know, the, the fossils that they found in the mountains that are solid evidence of the supercontinent and things like that. I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it's a place full of, like, how could you be bored there? It's so fascinating. It's so, I've never been there during the winter. I'd like to. Yeah, I think you should go during the winter. I think that I would love to. I mean, you'd be there in a heartbeat. But you know, you know I was start. sad that we didn't get a whiteout when we were there, because they say during yeah. a whiteout that they string ropes between the dorms and the and the cafeteria and the dorms in the lab, because you can't see where you're going and you could wander off and die. But you have to follow these ropes just to get to the cafeteria and then follow rope over to the lab so you can get some work done. I, I would have really liked to. Have, experience that classic high-tech solution there (laughs) (laughs) prepared for it to be like oh my god it'll blizz you know i've read all this stuff we'll have blizzards some days and you know i have to have these goggles and this and then you know like not so much really um but we were there in a very warm austral summer that's the trend now the wind is constant because it comes off the plateau it's Called Even though we were there in a warm period, it was interesting. The biggest problem in our project was that you cannot operate a camera well without gloves uh, or with gloves on. You have to take off your gloves. And it's just, it doesn't make sense because you say, oh, we even bought special gloves that would allow us to like use the camera better. Forget about it. You got to take off your gloves. And we even talked to a, a guy down there named Anthony Powell, who is made of full-length major movie about Antarctica and everything he's like significantly you know further advanced photographer than both but of it's, us he is the Antarctic phot- photographic MacGyver because he's you know in order like to make his batteries last overnight during the winter in 50 60 degree below temperatures he's had to engineer things and things that'll make the camera move that won't freeze up and you know so he's cool but he you know he was saying the same thing you know yeah we said how do you do do this in in, in, what what kind of gloves do you use and he goes oh you can't use gloves you just have to deal with the pain of all the solutions we have to things we have no solution to that we did we were up on in storage, the storage racks for just stuff. They call them the must stash, mustache, but must stash racks. So like row number one is handlebar and row number two. Is... Everything is like that up there. <laughs> Bizarre, funny little puns. So we had a guy sitting up on a shipping crate eating a sandwich. And the idea was, was a crazy idea. We were running around the whole like the lines of shipping crates with the camera firing off microburst after microburst. So, um, and it was supposed to look kind of chaotic and uh, it was windy up on that place. And it was cold that day, even though it was sunny, it was pretty cold. When I got back from doing my run, I couldn't get my hand off the, like uncoiled from around the camera because I just, kept it on the shutter the whole time with one bare hand and it just I was like shoot like and that was totally unexpected and then I was like oh okay I was all about the shot I was focused on it I didn't realize that my hand was freezing <laughs> into 
position. Um, but without, you know, camera shutters are not built for, you know, warm gloves. There's no glove that works. Maybe the fingerless ones, but your fingers still get cold in the fingers. We tried those flip gloves with the fingers that flip off. Like that wasn't working either. No. So there, anybody who's who listens to this podcast and wants to invent a glove that works with a camera, I mean, please do. Make a lot of money. Also, people are like, "What? Are, what things did you regret not having taken?" Me, a giant bag to change my lens in, because mm-hmm. if you tried to change a lens out in like in the penguin colony, we had to change lenses. Well. It was cold enough that we weren't, that God smelling the penguin guano that that's covered with, but the dried penguin guano was whipping up and blowing around along with the volcanic dust that's there. So I like, God, unbeknownst to me, I got one chunk of, I don't know if it was guano or what, on my, um, on one of the lenses. And there are all these shots that are, I mean, you can, alter it in post-production but I don't I mean it doesn't convince me when people do that so I was like oh my god I just wasted that much footage of this because of that thing it might have even been a piece of my glove that got in there I don't know what got in there it was so hard because the wind was blowing so hard and with mirrorless cameras if anything touches the CCD it's toast so I was really protecting the CCD and not so much the lens itself and you really have to protect both, duh. Um, but I would have a big like bubble tube kind of thing that light would come into that you could see to change it, but no air could come into it. That's what I would ask for. Yeah, it took me like three weeks to edit out that gunk on your screen that one time. Because when I shot the, the return from the Western Front, shot it's like i used your camera and yeah shot was so good we both loved that shot so much and me and working with an undergraduate took us three weeks to figure out how to mask that properly yeah that was in the dry valleys there was this that that wasn't that that was another bit of dust that came from that helicopter no the helicopter was after we kind of hopscotched around the McMurdo Valley's on a helicopter. And at one point they gave us no warning. Um, and it just, you know, the helicopter all of a sudden crested a glacier and we're like, shoot. And we're all the way d- down at the bottom of this really steep hill. So we're like trying to get all the gear. And then when the helicopter lands, it's like being sandblasted. So you don't want to be like have your lens or your CCD exposed. And I had been right as it started to come up, I'd been changing the lens. And I'm like, oh, 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 hurry up. They taught us how to like crouch so that you didn't get all that in your face when they landed. But they don't like you. Like if the helicopter lands, they don't like to sit there and wait for you. You know, it's not, they don't like to power down even, you know, you just go. Kilo time is in hours. So if you've got the helicopter for X many hours, it's got to make all of its stops. So the stops need to be efficient. They don't Mm -hmm. want to wait for you unless there's something terrible going on or storm conditions or something like that. And that's when you can get stuck out there for days on end. That was interesting. And 
actually slightly terrifying to me. I'm like, oh my God, all our stuff is going to be completely sandblasted now. What are we going to do? But, you know, I managed to like get the big red parka around everything that I could. And, you know, Vince was hauling butt up this hill and it was fun. Yeah. And then you realize you're stepping someplace where humans have never stepped before. Yeah, that would be wild. All the things you've talked about, like glaciers melting and penguins moving in the McMurdo Dry Valleys. Luckily, I have episodes about all of this. Just FYI, <laughs> coming eventually. Great. Any rate, well, it's been awesome to talk to y'all, and I know I've taken extra time, but uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank I you. really appreciate talking to you. Hey y'all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Enjoy.